Lend me your ears, constant listeners, for another great episode of The Far Middle. Production studios are headquartered in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. But our ears, they are to the ground all across the nation and the planet. At the beginning of episode 102, let me give heartfelt appreciation to two awesome careers in America, teachers and nurses. We first aired this episode on May 3rd, and yesterday was National Teachers Day. Nothing more powerful socially, economically, culturally than a strong, motivated, and talented teacher. The more we can do to assist them, turn them loose, and reward them, the better off everybody's going to be. And the more we allow great teachers to be undermined and ignored and sapped, hello public unions and those politicians who answer to them, the worse off we all are, from the individual student up through the U.S. of A. Might be wishful thinking when you consider the election outcome last month for Chicago mayor, where the winner received 90% of his funding from public unions, the biggest being the Chicago Public Teachers Union. And this Saturday coming up, it is National Nurses Day. Like teachers, everyone, including you and I, will at some point in life need nurses and great health care. I think we desire the profession of nursing to be as patient-focused and excellence-driven as possible. And like teachers, whatever we can do to incentivize great nurses, let's do so. And let's rebuff efforts aimed at bleeding nursing efficacy through ill-advised policies aiming to use the guise of healthcare is covered to achieve other objectives. Now let's jump right into our sports dedication for episode 102, as in jump shot. Last week marked the anniversary of the death four years ago of one of the greatest players ever to step foot on the hardwood, specifically on the parquet floor of the old Boston Garden. He hailed from a small town about an hour from my home, He lived in Ohio or was from Ohio, just across the Ohio River from Wheeling, West Virginia, a place called Bridgeport, Ohio, and his name was John Havlicek. And he accomplished more across his playing career than just about anyone in basketball history. Now, he started out with a bang as a junior in college by helping Ohio State win a national championship in 1960. He played on that team with the great Jerry Lucas and another guy, by the way, on that Buckeyes team who went on to a little bit of coaching fame. His name was Bobby Knight. Then he was drafted, Havlicek was, to the pros, but not just to the NBA by the Celtics. He also was drafted into the NFL by the Cleveland Browns to be a wide receiver. He attended the Browns training camp in 1962 before he decided to hang up the cleats. Well, actually, he was cut late in camp in exchange um, for focusing on basketball with the Celtics. Now, with the Celtics, Hondo, as he was nicknamed, and he got that nickname after the John Wayne movie, He went about setting new standards and revolutionizing the pro game. He could log lots of minutes and do so at a constant high energy level. He never sort of fell off 100 plus percent of intensity. And there were seasons when he averaged 45 minutes a game. And he was also a great defender. He was the first to define and epitomize the sixth man off the bench. He played that role for the first six or seven years of his career when he started out with those great or on those great Bill Russell-led teams for the Celtics. So those other great NBA sixth men after him that I watched as a kid. So that's like from Kevin McHale, who was also, of course, with the Celtics. That would include uh, Michael Cooper with the Showtime Lakers, um, Vinny, the Microwave Johnson with the Bad Boy Pistons. They all owe Hondo Havlicek the respect of a pioneer. And John Havlicek was a great leader. Red Auerbach, the uh, legendary Celtics coach, he called Havlicek the guts of the Celtic teams. And Red also said that if he had a son, he'd want him to be Havlicek. Teammate Bill Russell, he called Havlicek the best all-around player he ever saw. 
and Havlicek had unbelievable basketball IQ. His most famous play was in the 65 Eastern Conference Finals, where Johnny Most, that legendary Celtics announcer with that just distinctive voice, he spoke those immortal words of Havlicek stole the ball. That's a great clip. You can see that on YouTube if you want an exemplar of sound basketball fundamentals coupled with instinct. Now, Havlicek retired as the all-time Celtics scoring leader, and he held that record until his death in 2019. Think of that. He had more points as a Celtic than Bill Russell or Larry Bird. He retired as the NBA career leader in games played as well. And Hondo Havlicek, he won. Maybe that's a little bit of an understatement. I mentioned that NCAA National Championship at Ohio State as a junior, but there were also a few NBA titles, eight to be exact, 13, uh, 13-time All-Star, and he was effectively a great bridge between the epic Celtics uh, teams of Bill Russell before him and then Larry Bird after him. And he was too rare of a pro athlete in another aspect. He handled his money really well. His teammates went so far to call him cheap. He was an investor in some Wendy's fast food chains early on when Wendy's was getting started. Um, I had a chance, by the way, to meet the legend by accident once in Phoenix, Arizona, of all places. I was early for an event that was outside at a sort of resort facility. And there was another guy there waiting, too, who was also early. Uh, we got to talking, and he asked me what I did for a living. I told him that I worked for an energy company in the Pittsburgh area, western Pennsylvania. Uh, one thing led to another, and it turned out that John Havlicek told me he did summer work, or he had interned, I can't remember which, at the company that I still work for way back in the 1950s, late 50s or early 60s. And he also had family that worked for the company back in the day. So I didn't know who he was at the time. When we were wrapping up the conversation, I asked him his name, and that's when it obviously hit me. And yes, by the way, John Havlicek was a true gentleman that day in Phoenix. So an Appalachian son, a basketball great, a winner, a gentleman, episode 102 goes to John Hondo Havlicek. How do we follow that up? Well, let's take the work ethic that was ingrained in Havlicek and put him in a position to play 40-plus minutes intensely during each game. Those habits, they built larger and more successes across his career. And the opposite holds true as well. And we can make one of our far middle connections to a very big example to show you how that might be true. And this is going to be one that measures in the trillions of dollars of our economy instead of tens of minutes of a basketball game. Just as we surveyed the career track record of Havlicek, let's review the track record of the Federal Reserve and where it has placed the American economy. First, the Fed is racking up a track record of more and more and larger and larger bailouts and interventions in the private sector. What used to be the exception of the bailout, it's now the expected norm. Consider the um, sort of the, the list or the rap sheet of the Fed and what it's posted since around the turn of the century. In 1998, you had over $3 billion of a bailout for long-term capital management. And for those of you that recall that one, it was a really big deal because it was so rare for a bailout at the time. Today, you know, we look at something under $4 billion and we just shrug it off as noise. Now, after the internet bubble burst in 2001, the Fed slashed interest rates and that set a precedent that would mushroom out of control a few years later. The uh, global financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, that launched the Fed into another orbit level of intervention and bailouts. It did a $50 billion money market fund bailout and backstop, over $400 billion 
into banks and companies like General Motors and $1.7 trillion in government bonds and securities that it had purchased. Uh, this was when the Fed tracking bailout math went from talking in the billions of dollars to the trillions of dollars, and the Fed told itself and others in government and academia that it saved the world from collapse. I remember at the time, I think it was uh, Alan Greenspan who was uh, heading up the Fed at the time and Treasury Secretary Rubin. I believe they were being called the Committee to Save the World. And after that uh, global financial crisis, the Fed put us under sort of a stupor with the drug needle being free money and very low interest rates. And for years, what was supposed to be a short-term emergency action, it turned into de facto policy for all periods in all sections of the economic cycle. Then COVID hit, along with the government-mandated shutdown of the economy and life in general. And with those two things came $1.5 trillion in purchases of Treasury bills by the Fed. And of course, most recently, we have the Silicon Valley Bank bailout and whatever aftermath from the Credit Suisse Bank situation plays out in the U.S. banking system. You get the feeling we're only gearing up for more bumpiness. And what's amazing is how bad the Fed's crystal ball has been at the most crucial of moments. And I can give you a, a whole list of examples. Fed Chair Pernanke, back in May of 2007, he was saying that subprime was not a problem, that, um, that housing was going to be okay. And at the same time, of course, in reality, both were massive problems. They were burning down themselves as well as other sectors of the economy and, of course, causing the global financial crisis in 2008. Then you had Fed Chair Powell, who surely, I would think, regrets that transitory inflation commentary in late 2021, which was months after, months, mind you, that the CPI hit levels not seen in over a decade. And how about just prior to that in June of 2020? When once again, Fed Chair Powell, what did he say this time? We're not thinking about raising rates. We're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. But before you knew it, off the Fed went, raising rates. And it may just be getting started when you look at where inflation's at and its ability, the Fed's ability to tame it. You know, it's almost now at the point when the Fed says something, you almost want to think the opposite is true or it's the opposite of what they're actually thinking. And as government regulation and intervention via Fed policy gets more invasive and pervasive, it's making markets more volatile. Since 2000, we have suffered four separate instances of market corrections exceeding 20%. That statistic, it surprised me, but it should not have been a shock if I thought about it or thought it through, because when government creates a guaranteed safety net that covers investors and speculators for risk-taking, it creates that term that we're hearing a lot of these days, that term being, of course, moral hazard. Government and bureaucrats, they set rules and take action to mitigate risk and risk-taking, but they end up having the opposite effect because everyone knows there's no downside to going for broke, literally. And there's another nuanced problem with the Fed and its impact on markets and risk. Not only does it create more crises, but the crises they create, it becomes or they become more complicated, they become larger. Basically, the crises become more challenging to corral and to overcome. This might be, in the end, the biggest worry that I have because it only takes one complex or one large or one large and complex crisis to truly wreck an interconnected economy these days. Fed policy and financial market regulations, they're making that more likely, not less likely. One last thought to put out there before we leave this thought and move on to our next connection. What makes us think that something as complex and nuanced as a major bank or worse yet, the entire banking sector 
can be kept safe and risk-free by a bureaucrat doing whatever they do on a spreadsheet or with a video call through remote work. I read in a newspaper article recently that our comptroller of the currency back in 1881, his name was John J. Knox, he said the following, it is scarcely to be expected that a national bank can be saved from disaster by the occasional visits of the examiner. Boy, how true back then and how true today. We've been discussing track records of athletes and of the Fed. Let's make our next connection to the dot of where track record or past ends and where future expectations or predictions begin, specifically in the world of energy demand and carbon emissions. We have two very different views of the world that have been published out there. Everyone acts as if they are consistent, but they are in fact mutually exclusive of one another, and at least one of these has to be false, and I'm fairly certain as to which one of the two is wrong. Now, the first projection comes from a whole host of politicians and agencies and institutions that broadcast that steady drumbeat of net zero carbon emissions of a company or an industry or a nation or the world for that matter by some time frame such as 2050. So examples of this are the Paris Accord, um, the Biden administration, the EPA and the DOE, the United Nations, you know, just about every CEO that shows up at Davos every year, it seems. On and on, the long line runs, and on and on, they drone out that net zero carbon by 2050 mantra. The second projection comes from a host of similar organizations to those I just mentioned that are projecting energy demand growing globally for the foreseeable future. And in some regions like China and India, demand grows or is expected to grow by leaps and bounds. And much of that demand growth will be fed by carbon-based fuels like oil and natural gas, and much of the supply chain tied to things like wind and solar and electric vehicles, those supply chains are very carbon intensive. You constant listeners know this because we discussed it in the past in prior episodes. So these two projections, um, sort of talking up future predictions from past track records, they both can't be true. And we know which one is false. It's, of course, the net zero carbon emissions by 2050 nonsense. There's no way. There's no how. And I found a real-world example of this conundrum recently. There's a major, large, publicly traded utility in the United States who has a run-of-the-mill net zero carbon pledge on the record. A shareholder asked for an accounting of how the utility would get there. You know, what's the game plan, Mr. Utility, that puts you on that path to zero carbon emissions? And the utility rebutted the proposal, and the logic that they used, I think, was so very telling. The utility said, and I'm quoting them here, implying that there is no realistic pathway to reaching net zero by 2050 is in direct conflict with the stated intentions of policymakers, including the current administration's stated goal of zero carbon electricity and a net zero carbon economy by 2050. I think that says all you need to know. A company that millions of ratepayers rely upon to provide power service at a moment's notice, it's saying they don't, it doesn't worry about how it's going to hit a net zero plan and make it work because the bureaucrats and the politicians, they simply want net zero to happen. What? So therefore it's going to happen? That is not the way the real world works, constant listeners. Electrons don't care about what President Biden or the climate czar desire, government and utilities. They should start worrying about what physics demands sooner rather than later or the lights are going to go out, literally. Wait, thinking about it, you know, I didn't mention that utility, but I can give you a hint as to who that utility was that I'm speaking of by referencing 
a hit record from Vicki Lawrence, who's better known as Mama, maybe in the same uh, name sitcom. And Vicki Lawrence had a number one hit in 1973. And that hit, the name of the song was That's the Night That the Lights Went Out in Georgia. Perfect. Now you might know the utility that I am speaking of. But despite the uh, zero carbon by 2050 myth being busted by science and reality, the policy insanity with respect to that, it marches on. That takes us to the next connection up for episode 102, which is New York state lawmakers uh, looking to ban natural gas hookups in new buildings. Now, New York bureaucrats and lawmakers controlled by the left, they killed already what would have been a thriving energy industry with shale development years ago in upstate New York. And now that they look silly compared to what the shale revolution did across the rest of the world, including, by the way, in next door Pennsylvania, what do these New York regulators and politicians from the left do? They double down on the wrong decisions and the bad policy. New York wants to be the first state, as I said, to ban natural gas hookups in new buildings. Now, that should do wonders for housing affordability. Not. That should help with inflation. Not. That should allow for more consumer choice. Nope. That should help tackle climate change. Um, Definitely not when you do the carbon accounting of what wind and solar sources will emit on a life cycle basis. The quotes from some of New York's politicians, those quotes betray the remedial knowledge of the politicians on this matter. And you're seeing it's just plain ideology that is inducing ignorance. No science or engineering here to be found. I'll give you two as an example. Uh, The first one, and I'm quoting here, The basic premise here is that if you continue to build buildings that are going to require fossil fuels for decades to come, you are baking in destructive behavior that burning fossil fuels causes. That comes from a state senator in New York. As I said, pure ideology backing up the justification of more pure policy ideology. And then here's a second quote uh, that I can give you. Uh, This one from a uh, New York uh, assemblywoman. This is going to be the biggest way we can chop off a huge amount of the pollution. Now, that's totally false, of course. And as a friend likes to say, and uses that term, totally false. And in fact, you know, science and facts, they tell us it will increase global pollution, not decrease it. And it's going to chop something off, but it's going to chop off economic activity, or at least what's left of it in New York, not pollution. Blind adherence to ideology at the expense of logic and science, it exacts a heavy toll and not just when it comes to energy policy. We're seeing the same price being paid in our next connection, that in the arena of geopolitics and foreign affairs. The current administration made it a point when they took power to emphasize how it represented a return to normal relations with allies all over the planet. But instead now we are seeing ideology of the current administration that it's getting in the way of normalization of relations with our once friends. So consider, for example, how our government increasingly defines its version of democracy. It's not true democracy where the people of a nation or ally determine under open elections what the norms are of their culture. Instead, democracy to the current Washington administration, it means a nation who subscribes to the proper correct ideology. Typically, that translates to mean progressive ideology, backed by media entities such as the New York Times and NPR, of course. Now, what that produces are very non-logical outcomes. Our government would rather have an ally nation not hold democratic elections, but back progressive values, as in the right ideology, instead of an ally holding open, fair elections that don't back progressive values. That's not supporting democracy. That's supporting ideology at the expense of democracy. 
And that's going to take a toll on and stress our foreign relations, which is ironic considering, again, this is the administration that promised to do the opposite. And you see this happening with Eastern European allies. You see it with Mideast or what were once Mideast allies. And you see more of it and you will see more of this to continue unless our leaders drop the ideology and pick up the rational actions that support democracy and American interests. When foreign relations are performed well, it keeps our men and women of the armed forces out of harm's way. But when those foreign relations are mismanaged in ways like we just discussed, that places our military in bad life-altering and sometimes generational-altering positions. For our next connection, I want to talk about the Veterans of Foreign War VFW Post 4793, which is in Waynesburg, Pennsylvania, which is south of Pittsburgh and in the heart of Appalachia. I had the pleasure of making a visit there recently, and I wanted to share a few highlights with you. And by the way, you can read about uh, the evening and a full rundown of it on nickdeolius.com if you're interested. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that I've been thinking a lot uh, the past few years and, and lately about Vietnam vets. My dad is one that makes it personal for me, but it goes beyond the family ties. The Vietnam War claimed over 50,000 American lives, American wounded numbered in the hundreds of thousands. And today, Vietnam vets, they're senior citizens. A lot of them are in their 80s. Time is running out to right a wrong, a very big wrong when we look back in time. From 1964 to 1973, uh, during the Vietnam War, mostly young men across the nation, they dutifully answered a notice from the draft board to enter the armed forces and serve in combat. And most didn't want to go. Many were afraid to go, yet off they went, and they left their jobs at mills and mines and manufacturing plants. Some of them delayed to start a college. And the lucky ones, they made it back home. The luckier ones, they made it back home without physical injury. And the luckiest few, they made it back home without physical or mental scars. But none returned home, unfortunately, to enjoy a hero's welcome. Because when they returned home, uh, these veterans, these newly minted veterans, uh, they were subjected to their second war of attrition. And this time it wasn't uh, the NVA or Viet Cong that were shooting at them with guns. Instead, it was the left and their minions on campuses and in Hollywood that were uh, feeding a culture of disdain for Vietnam vets. The left basically converted, as they often do, the noble into the evil. Uh, Jane Fonda saw Vietnam as a photo op, and in 1972, she posed in Hanoi in NVA gear atop an anti-aircraft gun. The prior year, in 71, John Kerry, our climate czar, he uses Vietnam service as an opportunity to boost his political career, and he testified to Congress that effectively American soldiers were monsters. You know, enough is enough, as my mother used to say. America's national security, it rests in the hands of a military made largely of volunteer citizens. They don't start wars. They're called upon to finish them, no matter what the quality of leadership is from policymakers in Washington, D.C. and generals or what ideology uh, I might say that they insist upon. So just over a month ago, I made this uh, visit to the VFW in Waynesburg, Pennsylvania at the end of March. And that was specifically on the date of March 29th. That wasn't by accident. It marked another Vietnam Veterans Day. I work for a company that's stacked with men and women who served across the military. And we put our hearts and souls into making tangible, impactful, and meaningful, positive differences in our local communities and wider region of Appalachia. 
So we headed down to Waynesburg um, to, like I said, post 4793 of the VFW. We stopped in, we said hello to some of our neighbors and some of our fellow domestic energy workers. They were there, um, some friends and some coworkers. Uh, again, they were all there that evening. And Wednesday, which was the, uh, the date of March 29th, it's always popular down there because it's wing night at post 4793. So you had uh, sort of the place filled with regular members from families to small kids, to old timers. That was really cool to see. I was looking around. I was guessing I could count four generations of Western Pennsylvanians in that post that evening eating wings. Uh, so we had our wings. We had a tap beverage or two. We talked a lot. I like to say we listened more. Um, you know, the book, if any of you are familiar with uh, VFWs or American Legions, uh, there's always a book there that you sign to see if you can win uh, the pot. I forgot to sign the book. Uh, but we did promise that we would be back. And I got to tell you, constant listeners, that I think we are on to something um, with this idea of VFW and American Legion visits. I'm all in, of course, with supporting this region's veterans through the VFWs and American Legion spread across the communities where we operate and live. Uh, that's Western Pennsylvania, Eastern Ohio, West Virginia, and Western Virginia. It brings together a gaggle of things that I care deeply about. Um, Vietnam veterans, of course, veterans in general, Western Pennsylvania and Appalachia, local community, uh, finding out what is on the minds of people that I think highly of. So I wrote at the end of the uh, website commentary that I referenced that Waynesburg and its vets are the epitome of Western Pennsylvania. And Western Pennsylvania is the heart of Appalachia and Appalachia is the soul of America. I'll be getting out there more and more and hope to see some of you soon. And by the way, no matter where you're listening to this podcast in the United States, if you've got a VFW or American Legion near you, go support it. And if you're listening outside the borders of the United States, and I know we have a number of international constant listeners, I know you've got equivalent uh, type of organizations in your home nation, please do the same. Veterans and foreign relations and geopolitics and the ideology of the far left or far right over that of the individual one impacts the other, all these things we've been talking about. Let's connect to an example when mishandling of foreign relations coupled with extreme ideology, it's led to war, specifically World War II and its epic battles. One crucial battle in the war occurred this week, starting on May 4th, back in 1942 in the Pacific Theater between the Imperial Japanese Navy and the United States Navy. It was the Battle of the Coral Sea. And let me start by pointing out what many don't know, which is the location of the Coral Sea itself. It's the body of water just south of the Solomon Islands and bordered by northeastern Australia. The battle itself is notable for several reasons, but most military historians, they point to it being the first battle in naval history that was fought without the ships ever coming into sight of one another or firing directly at each other. And that's because this was a naval battle of aircraft carriers. And this battle established carriers as the new dominant weapon of choice in naval wars. And historians... They uh, also cite the Battle of Coral Sea as significant because it represented the first time the United States and its allies successfully held a line in the Pacific that uh, they would not allow to be crossed by the Japanese. Up to that point in the war, the Japanese enjoyed shocking success and rapid successes. Um, they appeared to be virtually unstoppable at that point. Frankly, the Japanese themselves were shocked at how successful they were early on. So Japan continued to be aggressive in the first half of 1942 and decided to try to invade Port Moresby on the southern end of Papua New Guinea. And this would be a direct threat if it was successful to Australia and the vital shipping lanes between Australia and the United States. So the Allies, they couldn't afford to have the Japanese take Port Moresby. 
Now, Admiral Fletcher headed up the naval leadership on the American side, and he was in a tough spot. He had the Yorktown and the Lexington aircraft carriers in the Coral Sea, but they were extremely valuable and precious. If they were lost, it could spell disaster for America and its allies as Japan would be left free to roam the entire Pacific. Just keep in mind at that time, the United States Navy had only four major carriers in the Pacific, uh, the Lexington, the Yorktown, along with the Hornet and the Enterprise. And the allies at that time could not point to a material victory anywhere in the Pacific or in Asia against Japan on land or water. So the Japanese were viewed, as I said earlier, almost to be invincible and were quite intimidating going into the Battle of the Coral Sea. But the Americans could not allow that line to be crossed where Japan would be poised at Port Moresby, right at Australia's throat. So the first day or so of the battle, planes from the aircraft carriers from both Japan and the United States, they flew missions trying to locate the other aircraft carriers, but they failed to do so. There were some minor ships that were sunk by both sides on that first day, including a Japanese-like carrier. On May 8th, both sides finally located and attacked the other's fleet carriers with the Japanese carrier Shikaku damaged and the U.S. carrier Lexington critically damaged and later scuttled and its fleet carrier, also the fleet carrier Yorktown, um, lightly damaged. Now, both sides suffered heavy aircraft losses during the battle and uh, the Battle of the Coral Sea ended up canceling Japan's Port Moresby invasion. They didn't, uh, they didn't go forward with the invasion. So military historians and experts, when they uh, assess the Battle of the Coral Sea, they, they say it's a tactical victory for the Japanese in terms of ships sunk and a strategic victory for the Allies. And I suppose that's a sound and accurate assessment. But for me, the key to this battle is that it was the first time the Japanese were turned back since the start of the war. And the Japanese Navy um, hit the hits that it suffered um, to its carriers and its aircraft uh, at the Battle of the Coral Sea. It prevented those key aircraft carriers from participating in the all-important and momentum-turning Battle of Midway, which was going to occur the following month uh, in June in 1942. Now, I wrote a commentary on the strategic and business lessons to be learned from the Battle of Midway a while back that you can find archived on the nickdeolius.com website. And give it a read this week. Tell me what you think if you get a chance. I close episode 102 with connecting to and acknowledging a Hollywood actor who served bravely in World War II in the Pacific Theater that we just spoke about. Now, this actor's name, Jason Robards, he was in the Navy. He sailed into Pearl Harbor a few days after the surprise attack and saw all the devastation. He was on the cruiser Northampton when it was sunk during the Battle of Guadalcanal, and he was on the cruiser Nashville when it was hit by kamikaze during the Battle of the Philippines, and that uh, kamikaze attack killed over 200 of his fellow sailors. Now, after the war, he got into acting, and here's a little did you know about Jason Robards. He was the voice of General Ulysses Grant in Ken Burns' Civil War documentary, which is a great documentary. And Robards, his best role, from my opinion, or from my perspective, um, for me, it was his performance in the great spaghetti western, Once Upon a Time in the West. And that was, of course, done by the great director, Sergio Leone, who we discussed a few episodes ago when talking some Clint Eastwood, if you recall that one. And Robards, he played alongside in that movie fellow cast members Henry Fonda and Charles Bronson. Bronson was a gunner and a bomber in the Pacific Theater in World War II. Fonda was also a veteran who served in the Pacific Theater, which is in stark contrast to a generation later when his daughter, Jane, posed in the aforementioned 
um, NVA gear atop an enemy anti-aircraft gun during the Vietnam War. So three Hollywood legends in an epic Western, Henry Fonda, Charles Bronson, Jason Robard, and all three served their country in World War II in the Pacific Theater against Japan because foreign policy came undone. And they don't call them the greatest generation for nothing, constant listeners. Let's reconnect in a week's time. Bye.